Well, welcome everybody to Stones Crossing Church. How are we doing tonight? I'm really glad you're all here. I was afraid you're going to be on the golf course today with the, with the good weather. But um, really good to see all of you here. We're, we're glad uh, that you, you know, carved out some time to, to hear Frank tonight. We're uh, just thrilled that we could have him uh, for this weekend. And uh, we are live streaming, so I want to welcome everybody that's watching online. We will have uh, this session available on the website probably by Tuesday at the latest. So, uh, so just keep that in the back of your mind if you want to share this uh, with somebody that would uh, benefit and be encouraged. So, so let me just take a minute and pray, and then we'll invite uh, Frank to come up and, and speak. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness. Um, we thank you for truth uh, in a world that has... Um, questioned truth and abandoned truth. I thank you that you've called us to be people of the truth. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the way and the truth, that truth is a person and that person can be known and that person is Lord and Savior. And so we thank you for that. I pray that your spirit would work tonight in our hearts, uh, that you would work in our minds, uh, that you would uh, give us open minds and soft hearts. And I thank you for Frank and his ministry. Thank you for his family. We ask for your anointing on him. We ask for your um, empowering of him tonight as he comes and shares. And we just uh, give ourselves to you for your glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Frank. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. How many people were here this morning or were somewhere else at the time? <laughs> How many of you are here right now? How many don't respond to surveys? <laughs> Three out of ten don't respond to surveys, Scott. All right. How many people were not here for either service this morning? Not here. Where were you? <laughs> All right. We're going to have to do a little bit of review to bring us up to speed as to what's going on. This morning, we started talking about Petty Officer Michael Monsor, United States Navy SEAL, who actually dove on a grenade to protect his two colleagues and gave his life up by doing that. And we asked the question, Michael Monsor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. Jesus of Nazareth. But a lot of people don't think the story of Jesus is true. They think it's invented. And we said there's an easy way to show that Christianity is true. And that is to answer these four questions. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament true? And we went through why these are the four questions. This morning, we covered point one, does truth exist? And just by way of review, we said, whenever you start talking about truth, you always have to start with Jack Nicholson. Now, don't blow this <laughs> like you did this morning. Let me remind you how this went. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I want the truth. Good. So we know, we know we're, we're, we're up to speed now on this. 
There's apparently a lot of people that can't handle the truth because they say there's no such thing as truth or you have your truth, I have my truth, all truth is relative. We covered all this this morning and we said when somebody utters something like there is no truth, you should ask that person a question, what should the question be? Is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. In other words, this is known as a self-defeating statement. A self-defeating statement doesn't meet its own standard. A self-defeating statement violates the law of non-contradiction. And we said if you want to avoid believing false statements that you hear in our society all the time, you've got to get good at turning the claim on itself. Turning the claim on itself. So if somebody says there's no truth, you turn the claim on itself and you ask, is that true? And we went through several of these this morning. In fact, one of them we went through is you ought not judge. You always hear people saying that. But if somebody were to say that to you, what question would you ask them? Yeah, are you judging me or isn't that a judgment? Or if we're not to judge, why are you judging me for judging? We pointed all this out. Jesus didn't say don't judge. He said judge not lest you be judged. He's telling us how to judge, not not to judge. It would be ridiculous to say don't make judgments. That's a judgment itself. And you couldn't live very long if you didn't make judgments. And we summed it all up this way this morning. We said, can everybody see that this statement right here shoots itself? Everybody can see that, right? It's self-defeating. And we said, if our reasoning is good, this means that relativism and postmodernism are false because they claim it's true that there is no truth. And tragically, many of our schools teach this postmodern nonsense. And we said we go to college campuses and we often ask atheists who show up at the Q&A mic, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And many times they'll say no. Why? They don't want it to be true. They don't want there to be a God. They want to be God of their own lives. And so I recommend when you're dealing with people who are not Christians, you always ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If they hesitate or say no, the problem is not in the head, the problem's in the heart, and you will find that most of the time it's a heart problem, not a head problem. But for those that do have intellectual questions, you can go through the rest of these questions, and that's what we're going to do. So that's review. That's what we did this morning. You guys ready to go? All right. New question. Does God exist? Now this morning I mentioned there are three arguments that we're going to look at for the existence of God. There are many more than three, but these are the main three we're going to look at. The first argument is the argument for the beginning of the universe known as the cosmological argument. Now cosmological comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means world or universe. And it says if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. The second argument is the argument from design known as the teleological argument. Telos is a Greek word meaning design or purpose, and it says if there's design in the universe and design in life, you, then there must be a designer. Now these two arguments have some scientific evidence behind them. We'll see some of that here shortly. The third argument doesn't have any science behind it. It's more philosophical in nature, yet it's the argument you've all understood since you were a very small child. It's the argument from morality known as the moral argument. And it says if there's one thing morally wrong out there, just one, like it's wrong to torture babies for fun, or it's wrong to murder six million people in a holocaust, then there has to be a God. Why? Because if there is no standard beyond humanity that we're obligated to obey, then everything's just a matter of opinion. 
would just be your opinion against a baby torturer's opinion or your opinion against Hitler's opinion. Well, we know, we know those issues aren't just a matter of opinion. Therefore, there must be a standard of righteousness, of justice beyond us that we're obligated to obey. And that standard is what we mean by God. If God doesn't exist, nothing's right or wrong. And we all know things that are right or wrong. We'll get to that later. We got to start right here at the first argument, the cosmological argument. <laughs> now you got to admit it was worth coming here this afternoon just to see God do that. Did you see that? I know a lot of you have said I've never seen God move. Oh really? Check this out. Now this is the argument that many say points back to the big... Now I know some of you are going, uh, Frank, you know we're Christians in here and uh, we don't believe in the Big Bang. You don't believe in the Big Bang? I believe in the Big Bang. I just know who banged it. <laughs> in fact, the evidence for the Big Bang is so good that even atheistic scientists are admitting it. Stephen Hawking, who was probably the top physicist in the world until he died about five years ago, put it this way, and he was an atheist. He said almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Now Hawking tried to come up with another explanation for the Big Bang other than God. He failed, but he's admitting the data. And it's not just atheist scientists, even agnostic scientists like Alexander Vilenkin, who originally is from Russia but now teaches at Tufts University, said this. With the proof now in place, cosmologists, by the way, a cosmologist is not someone that puts on your makeup. All right, this is someone that studies the universe. Cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is now no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, a couple interesting words in this quote. First interesting word is the word proof. Why do scientists use the word proof? Rarely they do, why? Because science by definition is tentative. You get new data all the time and, and theories change. In fact, I know you can't trust everything from Wikipedia, but do you know that Wikipedia has a page that's something like overturned theories in science? There's almost a hundred of them up there because science progresses when you get new information. So to call something a proof, you've got to have really good evidence. And that's what Vilenkin says. The other interesting word is the word problem. Why is it a problem that there was a cosmic beginning? Because if there was a cosmic beginning, a beginning to nature, whatever created nature, can't be made of nature. In other words, you can't just have a natural cause to create nature. There's got to be something beyond the natural, something we would call supernatural. And scientists don't like to think about that. Now, we're not going to go through the evidence for this here now. Why? Number one, we don't have time. Number two, it's all in the book, chapter three. And number three, it's not controversial. Even the atheists are admitting it. The controversial part is not that there was a beginning. The controversial part is what caused the beginning. So let's just jump to the bottom line. It seems if the universe had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. The evidence le leaves us with one of the following two options. Either no one created something out of nothing, which is the atheistic view, or someone created something out of nothing, which is the theistic view. Now, which view is more reasonable? That no one created something out of nothing or that someone created something out of nothing? What do you think? Someone. Well, I was at Texas A&M. This had to be 15 years ago. 
I put this slide up and one atheist in the audience said, I think number one is more reasonable. I said, time out. Let's look at number two for a second. Number two says, someone created something out of nothing. Now that's a miracle, right? But at least you got a miracle worker, you got someone. Number one is a miracle with no miracle worker. That's clearly absurd. In fact, do you know that everyone believes in at least one miracle? I mean, Christians, we believe in more than one. We believe in this one and several others. But atheists believe in miracles. They believe in this miracle that no one created something out of nothing. <laughs> Which view takes more faith? In fact, I said to the audience at Texas A&M that night, I said, to show you how seriously we all take the law of causality, and by the way, the law of causality doesn't say everything has a cause. The law of causality says everything that comes to be has a cause. There has to be an uncaused first cause. It's either the universe or something outside the universe. Otherwise, nothing would exist. Anyway, I said to the uh, audience at Texas A&M, I said, to show you how seriously we all take the law of causality, that everything that comes to be has a cause, there is nobody sitting here tonight who is currently worried that as you sit here, a hippopotamus has appeared out of nothing by nothing in your dorm room and is currently pooping on your pillow. Right? You don't worry about that. You don't worry that a raging Bengal tiger is just going to appear right now in the auditorium and start devouring people, right? Because you know that things don't pop into existence out of nothing by nothing without a cause. And if the atheists are saying the whole universe has done this, then why doesn't everything do this? Why don't Teslas pop into existence out of nothing by nothing without a cause? You wake up one morning, you look in your driveway, your Hyundai is a Tesla. You go, how do I charge this thing? Why don't MacBook Pros pop into existence out of nothing by nothing without a cause? Could have saved me like three grand. If you're hungry after this tonight, you want to have a pizza, does it make sense to order one? Or should you just sit in your kitchen, wait, and hope? One pops into existence out of nothing by nothing without a cause. No, it's the atheists that have all the faith. Here's a question to ask the atheists. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing at all? In other words, if there is no God, why does anything exist? Nothing would exist unless God existed. And what do we mean by God? Well, think about this. If space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing, what could have caused that? Something outside of space, time, and matter. In other words, something spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, because to go from a state of nothingness to a state of creation, someone had to make a choice, and only persons can make choices. The being would also have to have a mind to be able to make a choice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, when you think about a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause, who do you think of? God. You say, well, how do you know it's the Christian God, Frank? We don't. Yet, we haven't done enough research yet. This could be Allah at this point, or some other theistic or deistic God. But if we keep going through the questions, are miracles possible? Is the New Testament telling the truth? And we realize that Jesus actually did rise from the dead? Then we can say that the same being that walked out of the tomb 1,990 years ago is the same being in whose divine nature created the universe out of nothing. We haven't gotten there yet, but if we keep going through the evidence, we're going to see the God of the Bible is the creator of the universe, in other words. But we get six attributes from one argument. We haven't even opened the Bible yet. 
All right, the next argument is the argument from design, known as the teleological argument. We'll spend a little bit more time on this. And there's two aspects to this argument. One is, is that the universe appears designed, and the second is, is that you, life, appears designed. Let's look at the universe first. Scientists have discovered in recent decades that the universe is fine-tuned for us to exist here on Earth. What's fine-tuning mean? It means that if you were to change any one of a number of factors about our universe, virtually imperceptibly, the universe either would not exist, or if it did exist, it wouldn't, couldn't produce life. In other words, the universe is really finely tweaked to support life. And even atheists admit this. Again, Stephen Hawking, an atheist, put it this way. He said, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. If the expansion rate was that infinitesimally different from the very beginning, none of us would be here. Now, what could have caused that? You can't make any sort of evolutionary uh, cause for this. Why? Because the expansion rate did not evolve to this point by chance, whatever that means. It started there. Seems to me the same being that created space, time, and matter is the same being that fine-tuned the expansion rate to be precisely what it needed to be for us to be here. Also, the gravitational force, if it were altered by more than one part in 10 to the 40th power, we wouldn't be here. What's one part in 10 to the 40th power? That's one part in one with 40 zeros following it. You say, Frank, I can't get my head around that number. Okay, let me give you an illustration. Stack the entire North American continent from, what is it, El Salvador to Greenland, whatever it is, in dimes all the way to the moon. That's 238,000 or so miles. And then do that on a billion other North American continents. And take all those piles, mix them together, and mark one dime red. Mix that in, that huge pile. Take a friend, blindfold him, throw him on the pile, and ask him to randomly pick a dime. The chance that he would pick the one red dime is one chance in 10 to the 40th power. Is he going to pick the dime? No. There's no chance he's going to pick the dime. You say, well, maybe chance caused this. Ladies and gentlemen, is chance a cause? Does chance cause things? Who caused this? Chance. He was just here. No. Chance is not a cause. Chance is a word we use to describe mathematical possibilities. Chance doesn't do anything. When scientists use the word chance, you know what they really mean? Uh, we don't know. Look, there's only two possible explanations for that value being where it is. It was designed to be there or it wasn't. What makes more sense? You guys are aggressive tonight. Was it designed to be there or not? It's designed to be there. And this is just, these are just a couple out of more than a dozen of these. And it's not just our universe that appears to be designed. Our solar system appears to be designed with us in mind. Let's take a look at the solar system here for a minute. There we are, third rock from the sun. If we were just a little bit closer to, or a little bit further away, we couldn't survive. A little bit closer, we'd burn up. A little bit further away, we'd freeze. We are what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it is? That's a lie, it's way too hot here in the summer. Come on. The axial tilt, 23 and a half degrees, change that slightly, we don't exist. Earth rotation, 24 hours, change that slightly, we don't exist. 
the, the size and distance of the moon from us change that slightly we don't exist in fact if Jupiter was not in its current orbit we couldn't exist here on earth why what does Jupiter do for us Jupiter is a cosmic vacuum cleaner its gravitational force is so strong that it attracts most of the meteors and space junk to it in fact if you take a close-up look at Jupiter you see these dark marks? Those dark marks are comet fragment strikes that are bigger than the Earth. Thank God for Jupiter. Because if Jupiter wasn't there, we wouldn't be here. Saturn does the same thing. In fact, you want to see the planets? Here they are. Here, you got uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Earth. Look at poor Pluto down here. I don't know about you, but Pluto has recently been demoted as a planet. I think it's size discrimination. <laughs> and what if Pluto identifies as a planet? <laughs> you bigots. Take a look at this. You can hardly see Pluto. Take a look at this. That's Arcturus, that's another star in our galaxy. Here's the sun. Jupiter is one pixel in size on this scale. Earth is invisible. Pluto, forget about it. <laughs> in fact, if the Earth was the size, well, no, let me not get there yet. Keep an eye on Arcturus for a second. Okay, where's Arcturus now? There it is, way over here, see that? That's Antares, that's another star in our galaxy. The sun is one pixel in size on this scale. Jupiter is invisible. Earth, Pluto, forget about them. If the Earth was the size of a golf ball, Beetlejuice here. Look, I don't name the stars, okay? If the Earth was the size of a golf ball, Beetlejuice would be five or six Empire State Buildings high. The heavens are awesome. And that's just in our galaxy. And the average distance between stars in our galaxy is 30 trillion miles, and all that distance is necessary for us to exist here on Earth. Now, 30 trillion miles, how far is 30 trillion miles? Far. <laughs> It'll take you at least two tanks of gas and a Toyota Prius <laughs> to go 30 trillion miles. A number of years ago, my wife and I took our three sons out to Tucson, Arizona, because my in-laws live there, and we went to the uh, Desert Museum on the south side of town, and if you get to go there on a clear night, you can see thousands of stars in the sky. So we're out there one night, and the guide says, wow, it's so clear tonight that if we look up at 9.03, we will see the space shuttle in orbit. I said, oh, come on. We're not going to see the space shuttle. I mean, it's only 120 feet long. It's 350 miles up. We're not going to see it. Oh, me of little faith. At 9.03, the guide goes, look! And we look up in the sky about 70 degrees above the horizon. There's an object streaking ac across the western desert sky relative to us about like this. I mean, it's really cooking. When it got right about here, it disappeared. I don't know whether Scotty beamed it up or what. Actually, what happened was, despite the fact that we were in total darkness, the space shuttle was so high up that the sun was still reflecting off of it. And when it got out of the range of the sun, we couldn't see it anymore. 
Now, when the space shuttle was in orbit, the space shuttle was traveling at about 18,000 miles an hour. That's five miles per second. You got trouble getting to work in the morning? Take the space shuttle. You'll be there. Five miles a second. Think about how fast that is. Well, I did a little calculation to try and figure out how long would it take us if we could get in the space shuttle and go from our star, the sun, to another star an average distance away in our galaxy, 30 trillion miles. In other words, how long would it take us to go 30 trillion miles if we could go five miles per second? How long do you think it would take us? Two thousand. I hear two thousand. Something 50,000. I hear a long time over here. You must be a math major. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it would take us 201,450 years. That means if you got in the space shuttle at the time of Christ and started traveling from our star, the sun, to another star an average distance away inside our galaxy, you've been going five miles a second for two thousand years you would be less than one hundredth of the way there right now and we're going to explore space no we're not we're not going anywhere in space we can hardly get out of our solar system you know if our solar system was a quarter and the sun was in the center and, and Pluto's on the outer rim where's the next nearest star it's two football fields away and it took us nine years to get to Pluto we're not going anywhere. We're never going to get to another planetary system. It's too far and it's too dangerous. Even if we figure out light speed. Light speed, it would take us almost four years to get to the next nearest star at 186,000 miles per second. But imagine if we did this. We got to another planetary system. In fact, what I'm about to show you is a little bit disturbing, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. What if we got to another planetary system? We planted our flag. And then this happened. are not for astronauts, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> to show you how analytical my wife is, I showed her that little video once, and she smiled just a little bit, and then she said, that's illogical, there's no sound in space. <laughs> now, how big are the heavens? Notice what the psalmist says. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. Well, how high are the heavens above the Earth? The Hubble Space Telescope has helped us discover that. A number of years ago, they trained the Hubble Space Telescope on 1 26 millionth of the sky for 11 days of exposure time. What's 1 26 millionth of the sky? Go outside tonight, put a piece of rice on the end of your finger, hold it up, that piece of rice represents about 1 26 millionth of the sky. What did they find when they looked at that piece? 
This is called Hubble Ultra Deep Field. You can Google this. You can see what I'm about to show you. It's in the public domain. In fact, along the bottom of this, I don't know if you can see, these are mountains down here. This is the southern hemisphere. I'm going to show you the video they put together as a result of Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Uh, when I start the video, you'll see the constellations come up, and then Hubble's going to zoom out to that 1 26 millionth of the sky. There is no audio. It's just video. It's a short little thing. Are you guys ready? Yeah. All right. Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Here are the constellations. Now let's go see what they found. What you're looking at are nearly 10,000 galaxies in one twenty-six millionth of the sky. Each galaxy apparently having billions of stars of their own. If you find 10,000 galaxies in one twenty-six billionth of the sky. How many stars are there in the entire universe? The number of stars in the universe are about equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches on all the earth times 100,000. And to go from just one star to another star just in our galaxy at five miles a second will take you over 200,000 years. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't want to ever hear anybody ever again at Stones Crossing Church ever use the word awesome unless you're talking about God, the heavens. I don't want to hear awesome shirt dude, awesome shop dude, awesome TikTok video. No! What are you going to say for God? Now you know why the heavens declare the glory of God. There's just a big problem here. Because if the heavens are meant to communicate infinity, and they are, then this means that God is infinitely just. And if he's infinitely just, we're all in trouble. Because we've been unjust. So what's the solution? The next half of the verse I showed you a minute ago. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. How does he remove our transgressions from us? Yes, he's infinitely just, but he's also infinitely loving. So if he doesn't want to punish us, what does he do? He finds an innocent substitute to punish in our place himself. He comes to earth, adds humanity to his deity, allows the creatures that rebelled against him to torture and kill him so he wouldn't have to punish us. And then when you accept that, you're not only forgiven, but you're given his righteousness. This is why Jesus is the only way. It's not some arbitrary statement, I just said so, because there's no other way to reconcile infinite justice and infinite love. 
The only way you can do that and remain just is to punish an innocent substitute. This is why Paul says in Romans 3.26, God is the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, when you look at a universe that has stars equivalent to sand grains on 100,000 Earths, that in our galaxy are separated by 200,000 years at five miles a second, does that make you feel insignificant? Yeah, it shouldn't. Why? Because the heavens aren't made in the image of God, but you are. In fact, the heavens were made for you. And this is the second half of the design argument. That your design. This is you in the womb at 11 weeks. Question, is this animal, mineral, vegetable, or human? In fact, let's go back even further than 11 weeks. Let's go all the way back to when your mother and your father got together to conceive you. Have you guys had this talk before? <laughs> I see some young people in here, so I'll try and be discreet. I also see some older people in here, so I'll try and be discreet as well, just in case you've forgotten how this works. <laughs> when your mother and your father got together to conceive you, your mother unconsciously perfumed her egg to attract your father, and then your father sent the entire population of the United States. <laughs> 300 million soldiers toward your mother's egg. And then there was a race, and you won. That's right. Don't let anyone ever tell you you're not special. You beat out 300 million others. You have blown away anything Michael Phelps has done. Now, seeing some of you limp in here earlier makes it hard for me to believe you were the fastest soldier in the gene pool, but you were. Now, your soldier was 20 to 30 times smaller than a grain of salt, yet it contained half of the 3.5 billion letter software program we call your genome, your DNA, all the letters in the right order. And your mother's egg was about the size of a period at the end of a sentence in an average book, and it contained the other half of the 3.5 billion letter genome, your software program that makes you you. And when your Soldier and your egg came together, a new 100% genetic human being was created. You know, you, don't, you have not received any more genetic information from this point till right now. Your genetic information has just duplicated itself. In fact, there were only four things separating you from adulthood. Time, air, water, and food. Those are the same four things that separate a two-year-old from adulthood. Does this have implications on the abortion issue? Yeah, I think it does. We don't kill the two-year-old. Why do we kill the unborn child in the womb? Genetically, it's the same. You say, wait a minute, Frank. You say, wait a minute, Frank. You can't legislate morality. All right, no extra charge for this. This is part of our first book, creatively titled Legislating Morality. All laws legislate morality. Every law declares one behavior right and the opposite behavior wrong. You can't think of a law that doesn't legislate morality. The only question is whose morality will we legislate? And when someone says, don't impose your morals on me, you know what you ought to say? These aren't my morals. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't make up the fact that murder's wrong, that 
abortion's wrong, that rape is wrong, that theft is wrong, that men were made for women and women were made for men, and the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society, which is the reason the government's involved in marriage to begin with, is to legally recognize that man-woman relationship over every other relationship. I didn't make any of this stuff. This isn't my morality. This isn't your morality. This just happens to be the morality. The one Thomas Jefferson said was self-evident. The one the Apostle Paul said, the Gentiles who are not of the law have the law written on their hearts. So if you, have, if you have a problem with the morality, you don't have a problem with me. You have a problem with the creator upon whose nature this morality is derived. All right, no extra charge for that. Let's go back to this. <laughs> From this point till right now, a construction project of astonishing complexity began taking place. Cells began multiplying at a rate of four thousand cells per second. Brain cells began multiplying at a rate of a hundred thousand cells per second. For most of you anyway. <laughs> Some cells became brain cells, others heart cells, others lung cells. How did they know how to do this? Nobody knows. Some cells went so far across you to become what they needed to become that it would be equivalent to you today walking across the United States alone. And that construction project continues to this very moment. You just made four million new red blood cells. You just made another four million new red blood cells. You just made another four million new red, knock it off. Are you thinking about this? Are you going, wait a minute, Frank, time out. I gotta concentrate, new red blood cells coming up. No, this is just happening. How is it happening? Aristotle recognized something 1,200 years, 2,400 years ago. Now, obviously, he didn't know anything about um, blood cells, but he did recognize that all of nature's going in a direction. For example, why does an acorn, if it's properly nourished, always go in the direction of becoming an oak tree? Why doesn't it become an elm tree, or a birch tree, or a seahorse? You say, well, it's programmed to become an oak tree. Well, who programmed it? And is an acorn conscious? Is an acorn in the ground going, all right, what do I have to do to become an oak tree? No! Yet it reliably goes in the direction of becoming an oak tree. If it doesn't have a mind of its own, and it doesn't, yet it reliably goes in a direction, there must be an external mind directing it toward an end. That's what Aristotle called the unmoved mover. Thomas Aquinas came along in the 1200s AD and he said, this is going to be my fifth way to argue for God that all of nature's going in a direction. If it's going in a direction, somebody must be directing it. Now notice, this is not a big bang cause way back when. It's not that argument. This is an argument that every single second the universe exists, there's a cause directing everything toward an end. It's a present cause. This is why the Apostle Paul says, in Christ we live and move and have our being. And Christ holds all things together. And the writer of Hebrews says, God sustains all things by his powerful word. In other words, God is to the universe what a band is to music. Earlier, when the band was up here this morning, they were creating and sustaining the music. What happened to the music the second the band stopped playing? Music's over. Same thing is true with God. God creates the universe and the natural laws that govern it. He creates you and he sustains the universe and the natural laws that govern it and he sustains you. If he were to pull his hand away, we would go out of existence. Now there are more in the books on this, but we got to move on now to our final argument for God. 
and that is the moral argument. And in order to deal with this argument, let me ask you a question. How do you know that your quarterback throwing a touchdown is better than your quarterback throwing a pick six? That's when he throws the interception to the other team and they take it back for a touchdown. How do you know? This is the interactive portion of the program. Come on. Hmm? Hmm? An honest man, finally. <laughs> what would you need to know in order to say the touchdown was better than the pick six? You would have to know the purpose of the game, right? If you don't know the purpose of the game, you can't say that this play close, takes us closer to the purpose and this play takes us further away. Only if you know the purpose can you say, this is a good play and this is a bad play. Without purpose, there's no way to determine whether something's good or bad. And if there is no God, there is no purpose. So there is no right or wrong. Now notice, the purpose of the game comes from outside the game. When the Eagles and the uh, Chiefs played the Super Bowl a couple of weeks ago, they showed up in Glendale, Arizona. The field was set. The refs were there. They knew what was going on. They did not set up the rules. The rules came from outside the game. Who? The commissioner and the owners, and every once in a while they tweak the rules a little bit, right? The rules come from outside the game. Now, in football, the rules are arbitrary. They could be different. But in life, it's not arbitrary. The rules come from outside the game. The purpose comes from outside the game. It comes from God. But the rules aren't arbitrary because they're based on God's nature. If he doesn't exist, then nothing's ultimately right or wrong. It's just your opinion. In fact, if God doesn't exist, the Nazis were not wrong. A, year, a few years ago, I had a debate with the head of the American atheists. His name was uh, David Silverman. Although he was an atheist, he was also Jewish. And during the debate, I kept telling David, if there's no God, the Holocaust wasn't really wrong. And he resisted that conclusion for five or ten minutes until he finally admitted, you know what, Frank, you're right. The Holocaust wasn't really wrong. And I said, David, if your worldview is telling you that the Holocaust wasn't really wrong, you need a new worldview. Because you know in your heart the Holocaust was really wrong. You know that with more certainty than you know that atheism's true. So why would you ever suggest atheism's true? Welcome to theism. If there's no God, you can't say the Holocaust was wrong. If there's no God, love is no better than rape. Oh, you might like love better, but that's just your preference. If there is no God, there are no human rights. You know, in our culture, we seem to be inventing rights every 10 minutes. Do you notice that? And many of the people inventing these rights are atheists. Where do rights come from? They don't come from government. In fact, what does our founding document say? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men were created and endowed by their government. No! Endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and governments are instituted among men to secure these rights. And Jefferson and his colleagues said, King George, you're not securing our rights, so we have a right to get rid of you and get a new government. Rights don't come from government. Governments are just instituted to secure rights. Rights come from God. If there's no God, there are no rights. There's not only no right to life, there's no right to anything. 
There's no right to abortion, and there's no right to life. There's no right to same-sex marriage. There's no right to natural marriage. There's no right to transgenderism, gay rights, white rights, black rights, whatever you want to say. There are no rights. It's just your opinion. If there is no God, murder, slavery, and racism are not wrong. And we all know they, these things are wrong. If there is no God, religious people have never done anything wrong. And yet, how many times, if you're a Christian, do people call you a hypocrite? Or what about the Crusades or any of this kind of stuff, right? They're assuming a moral standard when they say that. By the way, if anyone ever calls you a hypocrite, you know what you want to say to them? You know, you're right. I can't live up to the standards of Jesus. But if I could, I wouldn't need him. I need a savior. John Dixon, who is a uh, historian from down under, makes a very interesting point. In fact, let me ask you a question before I mention what he said. How many people in here know somebody who's not a Christian because Christians have hurt them? Let me see your hands, please. Oh, look around the room. It's almost everyone. Here's what you might say to somebody like that. This is what Dixon says. When somebody plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven. So when someone plays Jesus poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Jesus. Look, just because I'm not true and beautiful doesn't mean Jesus isn't true and beautiful. In fact, we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We're not Christianity. Jesus is. That's a newsflash, by the way. Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. If there is no God, tolerance is no better than intolerance. Now, ladies and gentlemen, are Christians commanded to be tolerant? Be careful. The answer is no. Why? Because tolerance is too weak. Christians are commanded to love. Tolerance says hold your nose and put up with them. Love says reach out and help them. And how do you love people? You don't tolerate the evil they want to do. In fact, how many people in here are parents? All right, how many people in here are former children? Okay, that's everybody. Okay, now, if your parent tolerated everything you wanted to do as a child, would that parent have been loving? No. You can't tolerate everything your kid wants to do. If you do, you're unloving. And the same thing is true when you become an adult. You can't tolerate what everybody wants to do, especially if it's harmful. That's not loving. That's enablement. Thomas Sowell, the brilliant economist who's now 92 years old, grew up in Harlem, but went on to teach at some of the greatest universities in the world, said, when you want to help people, you tell them what they need to hear. When you want to help yourself, you tell them what they want to hear. And why do we tell people what they want to hear, especially on the sexual issues in our culture? Because we don't want them mad at us. We don't want any blowback. You know what we're doing? We're, we're taking care of ourselves then. We're not helping them. We're enabling them. You want to love people? You know what Jesus said? I give you one new command. Here it is. Love one another as I have loved you. How did he love us? He sacrificed himself for us. When we tell people what they want to hear, we're sacrificing them for us rather than sacrificing ourselves for them. That's not love. That's enablement. And if there is no God, you can't complain about the problem of evil. Why can't you complain about the problem of evil? 
Because if there's no God, there's no standard of good, which means there is no evil. It would be just your opinion. And C.S. Lewis, early on in his life, thought that all the evil in the world disproved God. He went through World War I. His best friend was killed in World War I. He said, there can't be a good God. There's too much injustice or injustice in the world. Then one day he had an epiphany and he realized his argument didn't work. He ultimately put it in the book, Mere Christianity, which everyone ought to read. Here's what he said. As an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, you wouldn't know what a crooked line was unless you knew what a straight line was. You wouldn't know what injustice was unless you knew what justice was. You wouldn't know something was not right unless you knew what was right. So, evil cannot exist unless good exists. You say, Frank, I don't quite get this. What do you mean? Look, because evil's not a thing. It's a parasite in a good thing. It doesn't exist on its own. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a good body, you got a better body, right? What happens if you take all the body out of the cancer? You got nothing. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of a car, you got a better car. What happens if you take all the car out of, a, out of the rust? You got a pinto, right? Okay. It doesn't exist on its own. It only exists as a lack in a good thing. In fact, we could put it this way. The shadows prove the sunshine. In order to have shadows, you have to have sunshine. In other words, in order to have evil, you have to have good. Oh, you can have sunshine without shadows. You can have good without evil. But you can't have evil without good. You can't have shadows without sunshine. So evil, we all know, does exist. And that means that God exists. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. In fact, evil doesn't disprove God. Evil may prove there's a devil out there. But it doesn't disprove God. So when Christopher Hitchens, anyone know who Christopher Hitchens was? He was a brilliant British atheist who sounded more brilliant than he was because he had a British accent. <laughs> when he wrote this book, God is not great how religion poisons everything, he's assuming a standard of good, isn't he? I had a couple of debates with him, which you can see on our YouTube channel. This is actually a picture from the second debate. And um, he said, there's all this evil you Christians have done. And I agreed with him. You know, Christians have done a lot of evil, but you're proving our worldview, Christopher. We know what evil is because there's a standard outside of ourselves by the name of God. If he didn't exist, what we did wouldn't have been evil. So you're kind of proving our worldview. In fact, he says religion poisons everything. Religion doesn't poison everything. Everything poisons religion. I poison religion because I don't live up to the pure words of Christ. But if I could, I wouldn't need him. In fact, in the second debate, I said, Christopher... You're right, I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to what Jesus told me to live up to. But if I could, I wouldn't need him. And so when people tell me I can't go to church because there are too many hypocrites down there, I always say, come on down, pal, we got room for one more. <laughs> of course, we're all hypocrites. We're all fallen. That's why we need a savior. One last thing. What does, the, what does it mean to submit? Nobody likes this word. not supposed to submit. Paul said, submit. How misogynistic can you be? What does the word mean? Let's break it up. Submission. What does mission mean? You have a goal, right? You're going in a particular direction. What does sub mean? 
You're putting yourself under that goal. You're trying to achieve it, right? So let's go back to football for a minute. If I'm a diva receiver and I say to the coach, coach, you've got to keep throwing me the ball. You've got to keep throwing the ball. And the coach says, look, we're not going to win if we throw you the ball every time. We've got to spread the ball around. You'll get your chances, but we can't keep throwing you the ball all the time. If we want to win, we've got to spread the ball around. And suppose I go, okay, I get it, coach. I'm going to submit my own personal goals to the goal of the team. Would that be a good thing? Yeah, of course it would. Now, the same thing is true in Christianity. You might have all your own personal goals, but if you don't submit your personal goals to the purpose that God has given us, and what's our purpose here? To know God and to make him known? If you want to go this way and God says go this way, you would be foolish to go that way. Your little temporal goals are going to come to nothing when they put you in the ground. You'd be foolish if you didn't go the direction he wanted you to go. In that case, submission is the smartest thing any of us could do. What's the opposite of submission? Pride. I want to do my own thing. Now, what can we conclude from these three arguments? From the cosmological argument, we can see we have a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause. From the teleological argument, we get more about his intelligence, and we also see that this being sustains the universe. From the moral argument, we can see that this being is also moral. He's loving. So from these three arguments, we get a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, moral, intelligent being who creates all things and sustains all things to this very moment. This is the God of the Bible, and we haven't even opened the Bible yet. This is called natural theology. You don't need the Bible to know God exists. You do need writings about Jesus, but you can know that a theistic God exists without any reference to any religious work. Now, you're probably thinking, Frank, don't atheists have arguments against this? Oh, they try, but none of them are good. In fact, atheism itself makes reason impossible. What do atheists today believe? Atheists are materialists, most of them. You know what that means? There's no immaterial realm. You don't have a mind, you just have a brain. You don't have a soul, you just have a body. Every reason or every thought you have in your mind is the result of the laws of physics. You may think you have free will, but you don't. You're just a molecular machine. You're nothing more than a moist robot. Here's what C.S. Lewis says about this. I can't say it any better than him, so I'm just going to show you what he says. It's too slides check this out suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe in that case nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull but if so how can i trust my own thinking to be true but if i can't trust my own thinking of course i can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else unless i believe in god i can't believe in thought so i can never use thought to disbelieve in god Give it up for C.S. Lewis, come on. <laughs> Boom, as John Madden would say. You can't say it any better than that. They've made reason impossible. This is why a book I, I wrote a number of years ago is called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. Atheists are trying to say they have reasons to believe God doesn't exist, but the very ability to reason requires God. You see the problem? All right, so... 
We've got this evidence that there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligence, sustaining creator out there. How do we know it's the God of the Bible? It looks like it could be, but how do we know it's really him? For that, we've got to go to point number three, are miracles possible? And you're probably going, Frank, how are we going to get through all this material? Point three doesn't take long. Point three is easy. In fact, let's start out this way. How, let's go back 500 years ago before there were any mass communications. How could one king communicate with another king across a great distance? What would he send? A message, right? And what would be on that message to let the receiving king know that the sending king had sent it? There would be a seal on it, right? There would be a seal on the message, and that seal would authenticate that the message came from the first king. It would seem to me that that seal would have to have a couple, a couple of characteristics. Number one, it would have to be unique to the king, because if everybody had it, you wouldn't know if it really came from the king, right? And number two, it would have to be difficult to forge, because if you could forge the seal, then you could send fake messages from the king. In other words, the seal is a sign from the king. This is the purpose of miracles. Miracles are like a seal from the ultimate king. In other words, if you look at the Bible, why are there miracles? Because the miracle confirms the message, the sign confirms the sermon. How are people going to know that, say, Moses speaks for God? Because he can do miracles. In fact, let me ask you this. How many miracles are there in the Bible? Approximately, anyone? How many? Say again. 102, he says. Higher or lower? How many? 500. Lower. The approximate number, depending upon how you count them, is 250. Some of them are bunched up, so they're hard to count. But let's just say that, that sounds like a lot, but it's really not. Here's why. 250 miracles. Let's take it from Abraham all the way to, let's see, Abraham all the way to Jesus. That's about 2,000 years. I know there's some miracles each side of that, but let's just keep the math easy. If you have 250 miracles over 2,000 years, how often do you get a miracle? Homeschoolers, help us out. <laughs> Once every eight years, right? 250 into 2,000 is eight. But do they happen that way? Do you get a miracle every eight years? And then another miracle, and then another miracle? By the way, that's not a lot, is it? One miracle every eight years? No. Where do miracles occur? When God's doing miracles through people, notice he's doing them in three basic areas. Moses, Elijah, and Elijah, and Jesus and the apostles. Why? Because these people have new revelation that needs new confirmation. Why are people going to believe Moses? Because Moses can do miracles. How about Elijah and Elijah? Same thing. How about Jesus and the apostles? Do you realize there are hundreds of years in Bible history where there's no miracle? Because miracles are used to confirm a message from God. Now here's the problem. A lot of people think miracles are impossible. Like, for example, Noah. All right. Is this being recorded? This is? Can we keep this just between us? <laughs> Can we all agree that Noah and the ark is crazy? <laughs> Thank you. And I asked you this morning, has anyone seen a resurrection? Nobody has. Yet for you to be a Christian, you have to believe in something no one has seen. And for some reason, the big problem miracle is Jonah. Is that a whale of a tail or a tail of a whale? I mean, what's the deal with Jonah? It's crazy. 
Well, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? Well, it's not the resurrection. The greatest miracle in the Bible is... I got some of you a second time. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible, right? I mean, it's true that God can create the universe out of nothing. Can he do whatever he wants that's not logically impossible inside the universe? Of course. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even the atheists are admitting the evidence for the first verse. They're admitting it looks like Genesis 1-1 is true, even if they won't admit God did it. Well, if... Genesis 1-1 is true. Are these other miracles possible? Of course Noah's crazy, unless God exists. Of course resurrections don't happen, unless God exists. Of course Jonah's a fairy tale, unless God exists. And if God can create the universe out of nothing, can he walk on water? Can he raise the dead? Can he turn water into wine? Can he part the Red Sea? Can he do Jonah, Noah, and all the... Of course he can, it's easy! He can create the universe out of nothing. Now, I just said something some of you might not agree with. I said, God can do whatever he wants. It's not logically impossible. Some of you are probably thinking, I thought God can do anything. No, there's many things God, God can't do. He can't do logically impossible things. Like, he can't create a married bachelor. <laughs> I know some guys try, but no. Okay? <laughs> he can't create a square circle. Doesn't exist. He can't create a one-ended stick. Doesn't exist can't create a five-sided triangle, doesn't exist. Can't create an honest politician. I mean, I mean, there are some things that are just too hard for God. In fact, you can do some things that God can't do. What can you do that he can't do? Change, lie. What's he going to change from? He's already perfect. If he's lying, he's not the standard of good. Of course, he wouldn't be God. Now, couple things about miracles we have to talk about before we move on and that is a lot of people don't believe in miracles because they've never seen one that's not necessarily a good reason to disbelieve something why because you believe in a lot of things you've never seen you believe in your mind have you ever seen it you're using it right now I hope you believe in the laws of logic the laws of mathematics have you ever seen them no but you use them all the time you believe in justice have you ever seen justice no, you may have seen people treated justly or unjustly, but you've never seen justice in itself. Why? Because it's an immaterial virtue grounded in the nature of God. You've never seen love. And everyone here believes in love, right? You've never seen it. Because it's not a physical thing. In fact, in the second debate with Christopher Hitchens, one student in the audience asked Hitchens this question. Christopher, what is love? And Hitchens, being a materialist, had to come up with a materialistic answer. So after he hemmed and hawed for a while, he finally said, love is a chemical. And I said to him, don't tell that to your wife. <laughs> Honey, do you love me? Yeah. Why? Because I got the chemical today. <laughs> you know, tomorrow I might not have it. Love is not a chemical. It's a virtue. It's decision. It's grounded in the nature of God. You've never seen gravity. Oh, Frank, sure. There it is right there. Nope. You're not seeing gravity. What are you seeing? You're seeing the effects of gravity. We, we really don't even know what gravity is. Did you know that? But we see its effects. By the way, this is how we know God exists. If someone were to ever ask you, how do you know God exists? You ought to say, I know God by his effects. 
If there is a creation, that's an effect, you're reasoning back to a cause, a creator. If there's design, that's the effect, you're reasoning back to a cause, a designer. If there's a moral law written on your heart, that's the effect, you're reasoning back to a cause, a moral law giver. If you have the ability to know things outside your skull, there's these laws of logic, and you have a mind, and you can ascertain truths out there, that's the effect, you're reasoning back to a cause, a mind. If there's evidence a man predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead, that's the effect, you're reasoning back to a cause, someone like God who could do that kind of thing. You're always reasoning from effect back to cause. In fact, if you think you've had some personal experience with God, it's still an effect. You're saying that effect was caused by God. You're reasoning from effect to cause. This is what scientists do. They always reason from effect back to cause. That's how you know that God exists. I mean, you've never seen George Washington. And you believe he existed. Why? Because he's left effects behind that are best explained by a cause known as George Washington, who lived from 1732 to 1799. You're reasoning from effect back to cause. So you believe in a lot of things you've never seen. And by the way, for Christianity, well, let me put it another way, for atheism to be true, every single miracle claim and spiritual experience in the history of the world has to be mistaken. Is that possible? Yeah, it's possible. Is it reasonable to believe? No, I don't think so. Now, do you realize that no miracles since, the first, uh, since uh, the first century have to exist for Christianity to be true? I think there have been miracles since then, but you don't need them to exist for Christianity to be true. And if miracles even do occur today, you should, shouldn't expect to see a lot of them. In fact, miracles have to be rare if they're going to get our attention. I mean, imagine if, if resurrections occurred all the time. What would the resurrection of Christ mean to us? You go to somebody and you go, Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. And the guy goes, so what? Uncle Leroy just rose from the dead two weeks ago. <laughs> now I got to give the inheritance back. No, it's got to be a rare event. It can't be a regular event. If it occurred all the time, it wouldn't get our attention. But you know, there are things that occur in this life all the time that are virtually miraculous, but we don't call them miracles because they do happen all the time. How many people in here, and every mother should raise your hand here, how many people here have ever seen your own flesh and blood born? Every mother and some husbands, right? Now, when you see another human being come out of another human being, and you know that was yours, you don't go, evolution! <laughs> right? You go, this is amazing! How does this happen? We did Whoopi nine months ago. Now look at this. <laughs> it's not miraculous, but we probably ought to call it that. We don't call it that because it happens every day. And obviously there's intelligence behind it. So yes, miracles are possible. The only question now, is it true that the central miracle in the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus actually occurred? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then he's God, and whatever God teaches is true. And he taught the entire Old Testament as the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. Now, in the book, we have like 10 different reasons we know the New Testament writers told the truth. We only have time to do two of them here tonight, okay? So let's just do the first one. 
The first is something known as embarrassing stories. Embarrassing stories, what's that? Historians know that if a writer is telling embarrassing details or stories about themselves or the heroes in the text, it's probably true. Why? Because you're not going to make stuff up that, make, that embarrasses you. You're not going to make stuff up that makes you look bad. You might make, your, uh, make stuff up that makes you look good, right? But not stuff that makes you look bad. In fact, let me ask you guys a question. How many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look good? If you don't have your hand up right now, you're lying <laughs> to make yourself look good. And it's not working. We know you're lying. All right, how many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look bad? You don't do that. You might lie to make yourself look good, but you won't lie to embarrass yourself. Well, the New Testament writers have filled the New Testament with embarrassing stories they never would have invented. That's why we call this the duh factor. They're not making this up. Let me just give you a few of them. Notice that Jesus calls the leader of the disciples, Peter, he calls him Satan. Now, do you, do you think Mark, who wrote this down, invented this? Do you think Mark said to Peter at one point, hey, Pete, I'm going to make this a real interesting story. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. What do you think Peter would have said? Have him call you Satan. It's embarrassing. I'm the leader here. And then Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. What does he wind up doing? He denies him three times. And then at the crucifixion, all the disciples, maybe with the exception of one, they all run away. They're cowards. This is like a Monty Python movie. Run away. They all run away. And who are the brave ones? Yes, the women are the brave ones. Now, who wrote the New Testament documents down? Men. Men. Now, what man <laughs> is going to invent that he was hiding for fear of the Jews while the women went down to discover the empty tomb? Would any man in here invent that? <laughs> I mean, if I was inventing it, I'd make myself look good. I'd write down something like this. Let's see, we marched right down there and we overpowered that elite Roman guard. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. What do you think? Yep. John said, get out. Peter roundhouse kicked him. Thomas said, we'll be back. No doubt. And then on Sunday morning, we marched right down to the tomb and we saw Jesus who congratulated us on our great faith. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. I would never say it was Mr. Sissy Pants why the women went down discovered the empty tomb. And oh, by the way, why would you never say the women were the first witnesses? Forget about the fact that it was embarrassing to men. It was, but independent of that, why would you never say the women were the first witnesses? Yes, because in that culture, a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the New Testament story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses. Yet all four Gospels say the women were the first witnesses, which is telling us what? They really were as embarrassing as it was. In fact, one of the women was a formerly demon-possessed woman. Oh, gee, what a credible witness you have there, huh? <laughs> you think they're making this up? I actually, I actually had a lady come up to me once, and she said, Frank, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. 
I said, that is an excellent point. <laughs> I had not thought of that. Because, ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? <laughs> there could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not going to tell you. You'll see it on the news before you hear it from him. You'll be watching the news going, hey, hon, what happened? Oh, yeah, forgot to tell you. The nuke blew up. I've been hot for three days. What's for dinner? He's not going to tell you. I can't even believe this next verse is in the New Testament, but it is. Do you know at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, this is the Great Commission. This is the climax of the whole thing. Jesus takes his disciples up on the mountain there in uh, Galilee, and he's giving him the Great Commission. You know the Great Commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he doesn't say make believers. Make disciples. It's different, right? Anyway, as he's giving them the Great Commission, the disciples are standing there. And you know what verse 17 says about the disciples? It says, some believed, but some doubted. What? He's standing resurrected right in front of them. And they're doubting? It's like they're standing there going, you see that guy over there? Yeah. That guy over there is Jesus. Oh, no, it can't be Jesus. He was just killed not long ago. No, I'm telling you, it's him. Look, Jesus is dead. The Romans killed him. It's Jesus. They whipped him. They nailed him to a cross. They put a spear in his side. Blood and water came out. Jesus is dead. And if they didn't kill him, they would have been killed. I'm telling you, it's Jesus. It can't be. It is. How do you know? <laughs> the women told me. <laughs> They're not making this up. There's even potentially embarrassing de details about Jesus in the text. Notice his own brothers don't believe in him. His own family thinks he's out of his mind, Mark chapter 3. You may have heard the scholars say that uh, the New Testament writers invented Jesus to be God. Oh, really? Well, why is Mark chapter 3 in there, which is almost universally recognized to be the earliest gospel? His family thinks he's out of his mind. And when his brothers don't believe in him, that's embarrassing. We learn later, however, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? Still sharp today. Dies as a martyr in the very city of Jerusalem that Jesus allegedly rose from the dead in. 30 years later, after Jesus' resurrection, James dies at the hands of the Sanhedrin, who throw him off the Temple Mount and then stone him to death. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and they kill him. But 30 years earlier, he didn't think his own brother was God. What changed? The earliest evidence for the resurrection is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. That's an early creed that was memorized orally. And in this creed that Paul wrote down in 1 Corinthians 13, but goes all the way back to the event itself, it says who Jesus appeared to. And one of the people Jesus appeared to was James. That must have convinced him that Jesus was God, that his own brother was God. Before that, he didn't think his brother was God. After that, he said, yo, bro, you're God. Now, how many people in here have a brother? Right? How many people have a brother who thinks he's God? Yeah, 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 yeah. You don't believe in him either, right? Neither did James. Jesus is called a drunkard. 
He's called demon-possessed. He's called a madman. He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. And by the way, notice there are two prostitutes in Jesus' bloodline. The Messiah's bloodline. Who? Who are they? Rahab. Rahab and Tamar. She plays a prostitute. Now, do you think Matthew and Luke, when they did the genealogy, said, you know what? I really think we ought to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. That's good. <laughs> No. In fact, there's a lot of shady people in the bloodline. Judah, from where we get the term Jew from? Jesus, from the tribe of Judah, not a good guy. What did Judah do? He sold his own brother, Joseph, into slavery in Egypt. And yet he's in the bloodline of the Messiah. David. David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but he's a liar, adulterer, and a murderer. Gee, I guess it's hope for the rest of us then, huh? Bathsheba's in there. But when Matthew gets to her in the genealogy, he won't mention her name. What does he say instead? Uriah's wife. Ooh. He's telling the truth, but it's a slam. Who is Uriah? Husband of Bathsheba, whom David had killed so he could have Bathsheba. Notice they're telling the truth. They're not spinning it. You want the ultimate no-spin zone? It's the Bible. Because they put all the embarrassing details in there that just about every other culture would scrub out. They're telling the truth. And then they hang Jesus on a tree. If you want to make up a Messiah to the Jews, you don't hang him on a tree. Why? Because according to Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. Well, Jesus was under God's curse. What curse? The curse of sin we put him under. But if you were making this up, you wouldn't say this, would you? Now notice, there are two trees in Genesis. What are the two trees? Tree of life and tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now fast forward all the way to Revelation. There's one tree. What is it? The tree of life. There's a tree right in the middle. What's the tree right in the middle? That's the tree they hung Jesus on. Because we sinned at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only way we're going to have access to the tree of life is if Jesus takes our punishment for us. So he's hung on a tree as well. Do you see how symmetrical the Bible is? You know, it starts with, a tr with two trees and then it ends with the tree of life. It starts with a wedding. It ends with a wedding. And this was all written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors who lived at different times. There's some divine supervision going on here. One more reason to believe that they're not making this up. Excruciating deaths. This is the argument that says that these apostles who were in a position to know whether Jesus had risen from the dead died excruciating deaths when they could have saved themselves by saying, look, it never happened. Now, there's something to keep in mind here that as you look at the writers of the New Testament... All the writers of the New Testament were all Jews, with the exception of Luke. He's the only Gentile. Everyone else is a Bible-believing, Old Testament-believing Jew. Someone who believes in Yahweh. Someone who believes that they're God's chosen people. There are two things they didn't believe. They didn't believe a man could claim to be God. That would be blasphemy. And they didn't believe that anyone would be resurrected in the middle of time. They knew that... People would be resurrected at the end of time, according to Daniel 12, but they didn't think one person would be resurrected in the middle of time. Yet, these are the people that wrote the New Testament? 
Something must have happened. In fact, let, let's look at the apostles' beliefs and practices before and after the resurrection. Before the resurrection, they believed in animal sacrifice. They've been slaying lambs to Yahweh for hundreds of years. Then Jesus shows up and they go, you know, we don't need to slay these lambs anymore because these lambs are just symbols of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. Before they believed in the law, binding law of Moses, afterwards, Christ's life has fulfilled the binding law of Moses. Before they believed in strict monotheism, afterwards, they believed in a trinity. Yes, the, the trinity is hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's much clearer in the New. Before they believed in the Sabbath, in fact, they thought they could be stoned for not obeying the Sabbath. Afterwards, they're worshiping on Sunday. And Paul even says in Colossians 2, don't let anyone tell you you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day. Why not? Because the Sabbath has arrived. Who's the Sabbath? Who's our rest? Jesus is our rest. In fact, out of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. What's the only one that isn't? Keep holy the Sabbath because Jesus has arrived. Before they believed in a conquering Messiah, afterwards a sacrificial Messiah. Before they believed in circumcision, afterwards they believed in baptism and communion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what would have caused these pious Jews who thought they were God's chosen people to abandon everything on the left and adopt everything on the right virtually overnight? The only thing, what I, the only thing I can think of is what psychologists call an impact event. What's an impact event? An impact event is an event that occurs in your life that is so impactful that it can turn your perspective around 180 degrees just like that. Some impact events are so dramatic that although you might not remember what you had for breakfast this morning, you'll remember an impact event that happened 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago if you're old enough. In fact, there's probably only a few of you in this room that can answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you can remember where you were, November 22nd, 1963, raise your hand and hold it up high. Ladies and gentlemen, look around the room. You see these people with their hands up? These people are very old. November 22nd, 1963 is my earliest memory. I was two years old in two days. Yes, I'm 61 years old now. I know, I know. I don't look a day over 60. In fact, when I hit 50, my wife was very encouraging. She said, honey, you're going to live to be 100. I said, how do you know? She said, because you look half dead already. <laughs> anyway, November 22nd, 1963, I'm a toddler. I'm standing in our living room in Wanamassa, New Jersey, and my mother is sitting on an ottoman in front of a black and white TV, weeping uncontrollably. Mommy, what's the matter? What's the matter? They killed the president. They killed the president. President Kennedy assassinated that day. I can still see my mother in my mind right now when she was 26 years old. I can still see her sitting on that ottoman. She's 85 now. But I can see her when she was 26. I've never seen my mom cry like that. That's my earliest memory, impact event. I don't remember anything earlier than that, and very little after that. <laughs> Where were you when the second plane hit the tower? I was in my home in Charlotte, North Carolina, my home office, and I had the TV on behind me. And I'd seen the first tower had been hit. I didn't know by what. And uh, I was on the phone to a pastor on the north side of Charlotte. And uh, we were talking about the topic that I would speak about if I came to his church. And I said, do you have the TV on? He goes, yeah. I go, maybe a Cessna hit the World Trade Tower. 
And we're just talking, and suddenly he screams into the phone, the second tower just got hit. I turned around, look at the TV, the second tower's on fire. I said, was it a Cessna? He goes, no, 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 it was a passenger plane. It was, it was, it was like a United plane. I said, you saw that? He goes, it was just on live TV. I said, look, look, let me call you back. I hung up the phone, and for some reason, that day I had CNN on. <laughs> the Communist News Network. And I'm not making this up, but the commentator on CNN said, one has to think there's some sort of navigational error here. I said, navigational error? You doofus. This is the clearest day in the history of the Big Apple. You think pilots can't see where they're going? I mean, do you think Stevie Wonder's flying these planes? I mean, come on. This is terrorism. I called that pastor the next day. I said, we're going to come to your church and talk about Islam because that's what this is related to. Now, 9-11 was over 21 years ago, and those of you who are old enough can remember something about that day. But if I were to ask you where you were 21 days ago, most of you are going to go, I don't know, let me look at my iPhone. What was I doing that day? <laughs> Why can you remember something from 21 years ago, but not 21 days ago? No impact event 21 days ago. Impact event 21 years ago. Do you think if Jesus really rose from the dead, that would have been an impact event? Do you think if he really came out of the tomb and then did miracles for 40 days, they would have remembered that? You think they would have turned their lives around because of that? Do you think they would have any trouble writing the New Testament, especially if they had help from the Holy Spirit? No, none of that would be difficult to believe. In fact, it's harder to believe that they didn't see something for them to abandon everything on the left and adopt everything on the right. In fact, you might want to ask yourself the question, what did the New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? What did they have to gain by saying Jesus had risen from the dead? Well, they got kicked out of the synagogue, then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Last time I checked, that was not a list of perks. <laughs> We're going to start a new religion. We are? Yeah. What's it going to get us? First we get kicked out of the synagogue, then we get beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up. <laughs> what a great idea. Why haven't we thought of this before? No, I don't think so. In fact, they had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen, not every motive to say it did. Now, sometimes I get the question, well, are there any non-Christian writers who talk about Jesus and the apostles? Yeah, there are. They're all in chapter 9 of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. But they're not eyewitnesses, but they give some good corroborating data, right? But, you know, often there's an illicit assumption underneath that request for the non-Christian sources. You know what that illicit assumption is? You really can't trust the New Testament writers because, you see, they were biased. You know, they, they were religious. If you think about that for more than 10 seconds, you'll realize how stupid that objection is. What did these people have to gain by saying it was true? Nothing. Everything to lose. In fact, some of you may know my friend Jim Wallace, the cold case homicide detective who's been on Dateline more than any other homicide detective because he solves murders decades old. Well, Jim is a Christian, and he's written a book called Cold Case Christianity, where he takes his homicide skills and he applies them to the greatest homicide of all time, the homicide of Jesus. And he says whenever he finds a body that he knows has been murdered, he says, I know there's only three reasons why that guy's dead. One of these three reasons, or a combination of. There was either a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue. Sex, money, or power. One of those three, or a combination thereof. 
Why? Because sex, money, and power are good things. The problem is they're so good, we'll take shortcuts to get them. In fact, sex, money, and power are the basic three reasons why any of us sin. We want those things, so we take shortcuts to get them. So Jim is saying that if you're going to say the New Testament writers invented all this, you've got to find one or more of those three motivators. So let's take a look, ladies and gentlemen. Did the New Testament writers get real popular with the ladies? for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead. No, they didn't get sex. Did they get money? No, they weren't 21st century prosperity gospel preachers. Did they get power? No, they got the opposite of power. They got persecuted. Paul had power when he persecuted the church as Saul. As soon as he becomes Paul, as soon as he becomes a believer, he's the one persecuted. They didn't get sex. They didn't get money. They didn't get power. There's no motive to make this up. And then you might ask yourself the question, why would they die for a known lie? You say, wait a minute, Frank, time out. If you're going to say martyrdom shows Christianity's true, don't you have to say martyrdom proves Islam's true? No, why? Because there's a lot of differences between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. But let me just give you one difference for our purposes here. The Muslim martyrs of today haven't witnessed anything that tells them that Islam is true. They just have faith. The New Testament martyrs, on the other hand, witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. Some people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not, and they went to their deaths anyway. You can't get better evidence than that unless you were there yourself. Now, last thing on this, and this is going to sound like heresy for just a few minutes. Stick with me, Pastor Scott. But it's not. And it's this. Christianity is not true because a series of documents we put under one binding we call the Bible says it's true. In fact, Christianity would be true if the Bible never existed. You say, how can that be? Do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Why? Why did all these people become Christians? Because they read a book? No, because they witnessed the resurrected Christ. Or they knew people who had. You see, Christianity did not start with a book. Christianity started with an event, the resurrection. If there was no resurrection, there would be no series of books. Jews in the first century are not going to write that a man claimed to be God and rose from the dead unless a man claimed to be God and rose from the dead. In fact, we could put it this way. The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. We would have no documents written about this unless it occurred. So always remember that the Bible, the New Testament, is the result of the resurrection, not the cause of the resurrection. You with me? Now, there's a lot more in the book. In fact, uh, here's some other... We just covered one and two. There's early sources, eyewitness deaths, embedded confirmation, expected predictions, extra biblical writers, the explosive growth of the church. We don't have time to get into that. But if you get the book and the other book, Stealing from God, 
you can see all that. So what's the uh, big picture again? Does truth exist? If somebody says there's no truth, you're going to say, is that true? Does God exist? First argument. Cosmological argument. Second argument. Teleological argument. Third argument. Moral argument. Put them all together. Spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent, creator, create and sustains all things. Are miracles possible? Greatest miracle in the Bible is? Creation, Genesis 1.1. And there's evidence, even atheists admit the evidence for that. Is the New Testament telling the truth about the resurrection? We just looked at two out of eight or ten of these, and the answer seems to be yes. So again, if you want to go further, text the word evidence to 855-909-0582. We've run out of books and DVDs, but if you want to get them without having to pay shipping, all you need to do is go to the book table, pay for it now. We're going to ship it this week, so it hopefully will be here next week. If not next week, the week after, it'll be here. You can just pick it up, all right? That way you don't have to pay shipping. All that stuff is on uh, the, on the book table there. Now, a couple other things. There's the number again, the books and the DVDs. We're now teaching online courses. I teach a bunch of online courses. So do people like Stephen Meyer and Elisa Childers and uh, um, Jay Warner Wallace and Sean McDowell and Gary Habermas. These are some of the names you may have heard. They teach online courses on our site. So if you want to go further, you can. We're on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. In fact, we're so into YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, we've actually combined these three into one social media, plat media platform. We call it you TwitFace. <laughs> Have you signed up for you TwitFace yet? It's kind of a Jersey thing. We're on Instagram as well and TikTok. Uh, don't forget about the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. Wherever you get podcasts, just look for it. It's twice a week, Friday and Tuesday. We're also on TV Wednesday nights, as I mentioned. And if you don't do anything else, download the Cross-Examined app. Two words in the app store, Cross-Examined. It not only has our, our podcasts on there, it has our TV show streaming on there. There's even a quick answer section. So you might be having lunch with somebody, and they say something that's wrong about Christianity. You're not quite sure how to answer it. All you need to do is take out your iPhone or your droid and go, hey, hang on, I'm getting a text. <laughs> what about this? It's right there. All right, it's true. So what if it's true? So what if Christianity's true? Big deal. Well, you know what the best news of all is? Someone actually did die for you. Now, when I was in the Navy, I was in naval aviation, and we had to earn golden wings, which were fairly hard to earn. But there's nothing more difficult in the Navy to earn than a golden trident. Very few people that start SEAL training make it through, maybe 5%. Those that do make it, tr make it through wear that trident with pride. It is their identity. When Michael Monsor was buried in Rosecrans Cemetery in San Diego, California, just about every Navy SEAL on the West Coast showed up for his funeral. And when they passed his casket, they took off their tridents and they pressed them into his casket. They took their identity and put their identity in the one that sacrificed for them, the one that died for them. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to put our identity in our savior. But no, our culture says, put your identity in your political party or put your identity in your ethnic group or put your identity in your sexual orientation or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your bank account or your job. You realize none of those things are ultimate, ladies and gentlemen. Every one of those things can go away. 
Do you know in Christianity you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity? If you have to achieve your identity, all the pressure's on you. And there's always somebody that can do it better. And what happens when you can't achieve it anymore? What happens to you when you lose your job? You no longer have an identity? What happens when you lose your, your fortune? You no longer have an identity? What happens when you lose your spouse? You no longer have an identity? What happens when you can't perform sexually anymore? You lose your identity? They're all fleeting, ladies and gentlemen. We're supposed to put our identity in our Savior. You know, you can lose everything in this life. The only thing you can't lose is Jesus. So put your identity in your Savior. This is why the biographer, John, who was an eyewitness of Jesus and a disciple who wrote the Gospel of John said in the very first chapter, he has given you the right to become a child of God. How do you become a child of God? You trust in him. You don't just believe that he existed. You trust in him. And you take on an identity you don't achieve, you just receive, and you can't lose. What could be better than that? And by the way, every one of us is going to rise at some point. The only question is, to where? Are you going to rise to be with Jesus? Or are you going to rise to be separated from him? That's up to you. All right. Let's move on to questions. And since no one likes to ask the first question, let's move right on to the second question. <laughs> second question right here at this microphone. This man is brave. Second question. Yes, sir. What's your name? Uh, name is Luke. Military Luke. to military, what do we do? We get out. Yes, sir. Luke, uh, wh what did you, where did you serve? What did you do? Uh, 20 years in the Army, so everywhere, right? Give this man a hand. 20 years in the Army. All right, Luke. All right, Go uh, Navy. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> my disclaimer is we homeschool. All right, so now we, it's going to be about schooling. Uh, I teach 11th and 12th graders. Uh, uh -huh. and, and being a strong Christian, I'm, I'm not going to leave the public school as a teacher. Uh -huh. But my kids won't step foot. Um, and I run into this a lot. We're talking about truth. Mm -hmm. Parents of a 15-year-old boy that wants to go by the girl pronouns. Mm -hmm. You see where this is going. Yeah. So this is not what to talk to about the kid, but I, I, my heart feels for the parents. Mm -hmm. The parents don't know how to navigate that. Mm -hmm. So this is not a hard-hitting question about a lot of what you talked about. How would you navigate that truth conversation with parents in a public school setting? And because it's not a lot of back and forth, I can just go out to see. Well, if, if you have the ability, are you saying, Luke, you have the ability to talk to them individually? I do. So I run the alternative education program with kids that are upside down in credit. So I talk to parents all, all week long. Okay, I might ask a parent a question, and that is, um, do you realize that transgenderism presupposes fixed genders? Why? Because if I'm a man and I think I'm a woman, I have to have some idea what a man is and some idea what a woman is to know I have a problem. And secondly, I have to have some idea what a man is and some idea what a woman is to make the so-called transition. If those genders didn't exist, 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 if they're all fluid, transgenderism would be impossible. Number one. Number two, every human being can produce either one or another. They can either produce a sperm or an egg. There's no third category. And this is true throughout the mammalian world. So if someone has a mismatch between their mind and their biology, 
The way you treat that is to change your mind, not your biology, because it's impossible to change your biology. You can't change every one of your 100 trillion cells. You can change your mind. In fact, Dr. Paul McHugh, who uh, was a psychiatrist at John Hopkins University, said that anorexia, or he said that transgenderism is like anorexia. If someone has a mismatch between their psychology and their body, we change the psychology, not the body. We would never go to a uh, an anorexic and say, you know, you're right, you're dangerously overweight, let me give you liposuction, right? You would say, you need to be nourished. Your mind is not telling you the truth. So you, you, you need to be nourished. By the way, uh, I've just updated a book that I wrote years ago called Correct Not Politically Correct. It's now called uh, Correct Not Politically Correct about same-sex marriage and transgenderism. There's a whole new section on transgenderism. And the issue is with transgenderism, a decade ago it affected one out of every 10,000 boys who thought they were girls. Now there's been a 6,000 or 4,000 percent increase of girls claiming to be boys. And what do you think has caused this? It's a social media contagion. This is being passed via social media. Parents need to get their kids off social media if they're going down that track at all. In fact, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, wants to pass a law that says you need to be at least 16, maybe 18, to get on social media. Because that's where this is coming from. And you can see why. What's the, when you're a young person, you young people know, what's, what do you want to do when growing up? You just want to fit in, right? You, you, want, you want people to like you. You want to be on the in-group. And what's the easiest way in today's culture to get in on the in-group? Claim your trans. Everyone's going to applaud you, and anyone who says, don't do this, you're going to hurt yourself, is going to be called a bigot and be shouted down. So that's where this comes from. This literally comes from the pit of hell. You can't change your biology. And if you want a, a good website to go to that might be helpful, Luke, go to sexchangeregret.com. Sexchangeregret.com. This is the site of Walt Heyer, who for eight years lived as a woman, became a Christian, and then went back. And he, he helps thousands of people who have gender dysphoria to get right. So check that out, all right? Anyone else? And you don't have to wait for the guy to sit down. It would be quicker if you were just like <laughs> waiting behind him. Yes, sir, what's your name? Nathan. Nathan, go ahead, sir. I can just ask. Four questions, keep it going here until the line starts. Why not? Yeah, you. yeah, until someone's behind you. So Faults! <laughs> okay, next. I don't know if you want that for this first one, but. Mm -hmm. uh, so, my first question is uh, Have you ever won a debate with an atheist? I'm not the one to decide that. I've never won a debate with my wife. <laughs> I can tell you that. Um, you know, that's for other people to decide. I've been, I've debated probably 10 atheists, Rich, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens twice, Michael Shermer twice, um, a bunch of other folks, David Silverman, a guy in Norway or Denmark, wherever we were. Um, so I don't think atheists, there's only one guy 
that I debated as an atheist who actually read anything I had written. And his name is uh, Jeffrey Lauder, a great guy. I like Jeffrey. He, he's one of the guys who started Internet Infidels, but he's reasonable. He's not a bomb thrower. If, if you watch, our, in fact, if, if you watch the Hitchens, two of the Hitchens debates, the best thing to do instead of watching them, go type in Hitchens Turek transcript and look at the transcript for the first debate. Because if you just watch the debate, you're going to go, man, Hitchens has this charming accent, and he's kind of likable. I, I liked him. You know, I was like, hey. But when you read what he's saying, you're going, what, the, what is he talking about? This has nothing to do with the topic. You know, we, we were debating at the University of, uh, what, what university was that? Uh, VCU uh, um, in Richmond. Uh, Virginia Commonwealth University back in like 08. And I, I come out to give evidence that God exists, and he stands up and he starts talking about what an evil person Mother Teresa was. Like, what does that have to do with whether God exists or not? Just, choo. and you can look at the comments in there. Many people will admit he never answered any of the questions. Well, what I'm, I guess what I'm kind of getting at mm -hmm. is, have you seen people change their minds Maybe not the actual debaters, but maybe yeah, you're not sure. You're not. You're not going to change the mind of the debater. I mean, he's got too much invested. Our goal when we go on a college campus is to encourage the Christians and put a stone in the shoe of the skeptics, particularly the people in the middle. You know, so they say, "Well, he made some good points there. Maybe, maybe there is evidence behind Christianity." And the bar is set so low. People in most universities don't think there's any evidence for Christianity. If you come in and put a couple of declarative sentences together, they go, this, this is pretty impressive, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's actually, that's one of the good things about debating on a college campus. All right? All right. Thanks. Yes. What's your name? Michael. Michael, go ahead, sir. Nice to meet you. You too. I enjoyed your, your talk tonight. Thank you. And uh, I, I was wondering if you uh, are given the opportunity or have you spoken to primarily Jewish audiences or uh, uh, there, there's uh, uh, Jewish uh, apologetics for Christianity, Michael Brown, et cetera. Well, Michael's a, Michael's a good friend of mine. Michael and I confer on quite a bit. Michael's great, yeah. yeah. Michael Brown has forgotten more than I'll ever know. <laughs> yeah, I don't I know if you guys. That, if you get that opportunity. Um, I, have I spoken at a Messianic con congregation? I can't recall if I had, um, but. How about, about non-Messianic or for Jews who are not followers of the way or believers? Well, they wouldn't invite me. <laughs> so, but when we go to college campus, obviously, we, we, we talk to all different groups of people. Uh, and of course, we're all over the internet too, so people can see what we do. Uh, so, but no, if someone has to invite me, I don't just like walk into places and go, hey, I'm here to speak. <laughs> right? So they're going to have to invite me. If you have someone that's open to doing that, I'm happy to do it. Well, well I am a follower. Okay, and so, good. So for, for me, um, I dialogue a lot with my Jewish friends who are, who are not. Uh -huh. And um, a lot of your information, I think, would be a great benefit to them. Um, and uh, because, you know, for most Jews, uh, the New Testament is uh, forbidden to be read. Yeah, especially Isaiah, well, in the Old Testament, they, they don't read Isaiah 53, that's too close yeah, to home. Yeah, on our, on our uh, uh, Torah, our Torah readings mm -hmm. that, that we follow, that go along with our Torah readings, it's, uh, Isaiah 53 is always skipped over. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is just devastating. So. Yes. But anyway, thank you for Thank you, sir. Thanks, thanks for asking that. If I ever get a chance to do that, I will. Now... Uh,
I, I do go to Israel a lot, and I talk loud. <laughs> so, uh, yep, that's right. Our guide, Eli Shukran, is Jewish. You know, he's the guy that discovered the Pool of Siloam. He's an archaeologist, so he, he hears the gospel all the time when I go over there. And I know a bunch of you guys are going in a couple weeks, right? So, um, yeah, just speak real loud. <laughs> then everyone will hear you. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. Um, what would you say to those who believe that psychedelics would be the only way to cure them with their depression, or um, some that say that's the only way to experience God, that that's the only way they've seen God, and that's how they know God. How do they know it's God? You know, a psychedelic would be a drug, so that's going to alter your mind. That's not a clear way of recognizing anything that's objective in the real world. That's, that's going to set your brain off in different chemical reactions to produce those kinds of thoughts. So that wouldn't be God. That might give you some sort of internal high of some kind, but that wouldn't necessarily be God. I mean, how would they know it would be God? Well, I've said to them that uh, I don't believe our God would, would make it to where the only way you can experience him or mm -hmm. get to know him is through mm -hmm. a mind-altering drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in fact, if the scriptures are true, they didn't have psychedelics, right? <laughs> they had uh, some sort of connection with God and wrote down what he wanted them to write down. So, yeah, I, 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 I might, you know, the only passages we could talk about where the passages about alcohol don't get drunk, right? Doesn't say don't drink at all, it says don't get drunk. And then uh, the passages about uh, Paul talking about not just drunkenness, but he says, let us, uh, I can't remember the exact passage where he talks about, about what? Yeah, pharmakia, and he talks about, let's make sure that we are high on the Holy Spirit, for lack of a better term, not all these different kind of drugs. That wouldn't be the way forward, because you lose your, your ability to make moral choices when you take drugs to a, an extent that it impairs you. Well, those that would use it for uh, depression would say, well, there's antidepressants and there's uh, proof that a psychedelic has cured depression. Well, if that were indeed the case, then that would be given under the care of a, of a doctor. Mm -hmm. And if that does cure them, if they have some sort of chemical imbalance, that would be for the medical profession to try and discover. But that would be very closely monitored and measured. It's not, uh, let's, let's do acid on Sunday night. No, <laughs> right? Well, these, these same people uh, that I've experienced, they also uh, will say that prayer didn't work, getting closer to God doesn't work. Um, prayer doesn't work and what? Getting closer to God, having a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure they tried busy. really hard. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But this is easy. Look, it would be easy to take a pill for everything, wouldn't it? And a lot of people try to. Now, I'm not saying there, there may be instances where that's necessary, but I think in our country, we're over-medicated, mm -hmm. right? And Thanks, Frank. All right, thank you. Isn't it interesting that we have the highest standard of living in the world, and yet we're the most depressed? It's probably because we've lost what the purpose of life is. We're trying to make up our own truth rather than submitting ourselves to the truth. Remember, Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. What does that imply? If you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. Yes, ma'am. What's your name? Hi, I'm Molly. Emily, go ahead. Molly. Oh, Molly, sorry. <laughs> 
Um, I kind of have a follow-up from the first question. We have four kids and they're all in public school. And I'm surprised how young they are when they start to um, encounter sexual orientation issues and how the vast number are told that it's a big part of their identity and they have to define that so early. So we've had these conversations in our home. What would you recommend we say to our children when they ask us what the bad is in same-sex attraction and could they be involved in, in gay or same-sex relationships, be good people and get to heaven one day? Say that last part. Can, can someone be in a same-sex relationship and be yeah, a good and person? Be and be good people who believe in God and still get into heaven one day but live that life. Well, you'd have to read 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul says that some of you were homosexuals, but then he goes on to say some of you are covetous. That's all of us, right? He, he talks about all of these immoral behaviors, and he says these people are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says, but that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified. In other words... Being heterosexual doesn't get you to heaven. What gets you to heaven is accepting the free gift of salvation. Now, if you truly do accept the free gift of salvation, you truly do love Jesus, you're not going to want to continue to sin. So anybody who truly loves Jesus is not going to want to continue to sin. They may still struggle with it, but they're not going to want to continue the only, there's only one person, by the way, who's not permitted in the church. The one person that's not permitted in the church is a person who claims to be a Christian and yet says known sin is not sin. And where do we get this from? 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is talking about some man in the church who is sleeping with his father's wife. And he says, you're proud about that? Expel the immoral brother. Get him out of there so he doesn't pollute the rest of the congregation and he comes to his senses. And if you read 2 Corinthians, kind of between the lines, it seems like it worked. Excommunicating him brought him back. All right? So if there are people who claim, say, um, that same-sex behavior is a good thing, and I'm a Christian, Paul would say, kick that person out of the church. The same, if they said adultery is a good thing, and I'm a Christian, kick that person out of the church. Any sin, known sin, kick that person out of the church for his own good and for the good of the congregation. So we're to follow Jesus, not the culture. And the people who say it would be right to say that there's nothing wrong with this kind of behavior are importing a moral standard. Where are they getting that moral standard from? If it, is it just their opinion? If it's just their opinion then don't impose it on the rest of us. If you're getting this from God, show us how God approves of this. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So you think that taking the secular stance of like making that black and white argument to your kids does more damage if they're thinking in that way or, or if their friends are thinking in that way and they're trying to... Does what, what does more damage? Like that they'll feel... Um, like outcasted and like they don't have a place with God and so they turn away from him entirely. Because the point is to minister to your friends or your kids right. to bring them closer to him. So by saying it's not right, do you feel like that deters them more? No, because you, you would be giving them a false gospel mm -hmm. if you were to say, you can bring all your sins with you and keep doing them 
and still be saved. According to the Bible, you can't do that. Not to say that you won't continue to sin, but if you're advocating sin, then Paul says, you're out. And that's what these people want to do. They want to advocate it. Look, as I said earlier, as Saul put it, if you want to help people, you tell them the truth. You don't tell them what they want to hear. You've got to tell them the truth. So from a very young age, you're going to have to be very direct with them and point out if they disagree, they're, they're inventing their own moral standard. You know, we, are we going to follow Jesus or are we going to just follow ourselves? That's the basic question. Yeah, thank you. All right, thank you. Yes, sir. Uh, name's Brian. Hey, Brian. I, I've got a friend who has a daughter who was a Christian, married to a Muslim, and now has converted to Muslim, uh, being Islam. Oh. And my friend's beside herself. She, she's looking for answers to refute what her daughter's trying to tell her. Uh, things like you've explained for it. I've, I've given, given her uh, evidence, like some of the websites you've mm -hmm. come up with, Abdu Murray, some of those mm -hmm. uh, teachers. Uh, one of her daughter's big um, things is Paul was a uh, bad writer. He's, he's not reliable. I don't know where they get that from. Paul's not reliable. Yeah. So 13 books of the New Testament are not yeah. reliable. Right. Make, make the case. Why do you think that is? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and, and they say that a lot of Muslims don't respect Paul and his writings and, mm -hmm. and say he's not a, something to be looked towards. And mm -hmm. So what's, what's an easier, quick, if there is a quick way to... There's no quick way because what she's decided to do is she's decided to put her relationship over God. Yeah, that's, that's basically what's going on. Yeah. And we're all susceptible to this. In fact, my mentor, Dr. Geiser, used to always say, that in most cases, fraternity will overpower theology. In other words, there are people, this whole same-sex issue, we, we have people we love who are same-sex attracted, and instead of trying to help them by telling them the truth, we will deny our theology in order to affirm them. We will deny what God told us to do in order to affirm them. That's when fraternity overpowers theology. And as I mentioned this morning, Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword. It's going to divide mother and daughter, father and son. We're either going to stand with Jesus or we're going to stand with the culture. So there's no easy way. I will tell you of a good book, and that is Answering Islam, written by Dr. Norman Geisler and Abdul Salib, who's a converted Muslim. And, uh, but I don't think in her situation, her problem is academic. It's not intellectual, it's volitional. You know, there's a story that happened to us and back in 1999, Dr. Geish and I went to a, a church in Springfield, Missouri. And the church was up in arms because one of the primary um, leaders of the youth group, a girl that had just graduated high school, met a Muslim man and was marrying him. And the church didn't want that to happen. We're supposed to marry somebody in the Lord. And this guy came to our event and tried to ask us questions and try and shot, shot down some of our arguments. Well, long story short, he took her to some Middle Eastern country. They had a baby together. And it turned out that she wasn't the only wife. And her parents sent her a uh, teddy bear. And inside the teddy bear was a credit card for her to get out of the country. 
and somehow she got out with the baby. So I'm not saying this happens in all these mixed marriages. I'm just saying that sometimes things aren't what they seem. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Brian. Yes, ma'am. What's your name? Natalie. Say again. Natalie. Natalie, go ahead. Okay, so first I want to preface this by don't take my word for it. Test it against scripture. <laughs> but I just want to say, speaking from experience, um, to your question about how to talk to um, people that are struggling with homosexuality, I actually, um, before giving my life to Christ, was, I don't know why I'm getting emotional, um, was in a homosexual relationship. And I just want to say, um, first of all, that God is good, and I'm really grateful that he's redeemed me from that. But... Um, <laughs> our first our first inclination that we want to go towards is to talk to them about the sin but you can't talk to someone about their sin until they know their need for a savior so your first your first thing that you should be talking to them about is the gospel and not about their sin and until they know their need for a savior, they're not gonna wanna know anything about their sin. And so that's my advice to you is to start there. Um, and then also to the man who asked about, um, I would call it psychotropic more than psychedelic, um, but about those drugs, again, the Lord has redeemed me from a lot, but I am a suicide attempt survivor and was on psychotropic drugs for a very long time. Um, and I just wanna say, because you even kind of mentioned it yourself about the chemical imbalance. I just want to say first and foremost that that's a theory and it has never been proven. Um, and they've t tried to prove that, but they don't have any like pathological on a cellular level evidence for that. And actually um, there is evidence contrary to that where people who are on, um, they did a study where people who were given the medicine and people who were given a placebo, the people with the placebo actually experienced a greater improvement than the people with the actual drug. So I'm not sure if that's helpful at all, but I would just say do your research and look for, first and foremost, in the scriptures. But I just wanted to mention the chemical imbalance theory because I think a lot of people accept that as fact when in reality it's not factual and it's never been proven. So take that as you will, and again, test it against scripture. Don't take my word for it. Okay, thank you, Natalie. <laughs> By the way, if anyone here has a child, and if the child has a chemical imbalance, you need to go get them right now, okay? Because we're, run, we're a little bit over time. So, um, because I think the nursery workers believe in chemical imbalances. <laughs> when they have all bunch of toddlers in one room. So we may take a few more questions, but if you have a child, you probably need to go get them now, okay? Yes, ma'am, go ahead. What's your name? My name is Sierra. Say, Sierra? Sierra. Okay. So I'm a Christian. I'm not debating your point or anything, just purely out of curiosity. So your first point, it was like the nothing, like no one creating nothing mm -hmm. out of something out of nothing, mm -hmm. sorry, words, um, or someone creating mm -hmm. something out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Purely in your opinion, um, what makes someone creating something out of nothing any more plausible than no, no one creating nothing, something out of nothing? Because you need a being with the capacity to create to get something from nothing. 
So you would need a being that has power and intellect in order to decide to create the universe out of nothing. If there was nothing, meaning non-being, no thing, then nothing would continue to exist today. But since there is a being that had these attributes, including power to create, that gave us the universe because this being decided to create. This is just basic cause and effect that we, that we assume in order to do science. You can't do science if effects can arise without causes, right? Because that's what you do when you're doing science. You're trying to figure out what particular cause caused a particular effect that you see. So do you see any other way something could come into existence without a cause? Just curious. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's good because some, some atheists will try and say, well, it just popped into existence. And our response to that is, why doesn't everything just pop into existence then, right? If the whole universe can do so, why doesn't everything do so? Why is this popping into existence just universes? <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, Frank. Thank you, uh, Stones Crossing, for uh, bringing yeah. Frank Turek to town. I really appreciate that. I don't go to uh, Stones Crossing. I'm from the north side of uh, town, so is, is that okay? I'm on the south side. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> However, I would like to urge you guys to uh, pray for something, and this is an open invitation. If you have a child or a teenager, I'm working with, uh, Frank is coming back in about uh, 30 days. Uh, to speak at Ball State University, okay? So that's on uh, March 27th, I think it is? 28th, Tuesday evening at Cardinal Hall at 7 p.m. Invitation is for kids of adult, uh, young adult professionals and students. We have a coordination of all the campus Christian organizations up at Ball State. Uh, also, he's speaking at IUPUI on Thursday evening, 7 p.m., and that's at the Campus Center. So your ticket, if you'd like to come and hear Frank Turek again, is to bring a student, high school student, typically junior, senior, sophomore is probably okay, high school student of that age, or a young professional, or a college student. Now, I teach at IUPUI. I teach math. And I had a student in my class wear a shirt, a uh, sweatshirt said, live like Jesus. Now, I can't promote my belief in Christ, but when that student did that, <coughs> I said, let's talk. And then she is coming to hear Frank. She's a believer. She does not have class on that day. She is that committed of a Christian. So now, She's wearing a Christian shirt almost every single math class I teach. And I praise God for that. And thank you, Mike. Thank you, uh, 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 Frank, for coming. I really appreciate that very much. Uh, I think what you're saying, in fact, I know what you're saying is true. In case you don't know, 60 to 93% of the evangelical students who go to college lose their faith for about 10 years or so. That is one of the reasons. I accepted Christ when I was in college. I went to Rose Holman. Uh, and so I see a real need for this. And having met a lot of atheists on campus, including Richard Dawkins, mm -hmm. 
and spoken with him and his disciples, what Frank is saying is true. We have a slight disagreement on the age of the earth and the universe, but that's okay. I believe it's young. He believes it's a little bit old. That's okay. No, I'm absolutely convinced the universe is at least 61 years old. That's right. Well, it's older than that. <laughs> my dad was born in 1909, so... <laughs> I'm going to throw my mom in there. It's at least 85. Right. <laughs> but we're all young in Christ. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Pastor. Everybody, will you guys uh, thank Frank for... So if you don't have a church home, uh, there's room for you here at Stones. We're right in the middle of a series in the Gospel of Mark called Servant King. We're working through the scriptures. We want you to know the word of God. We want you to love the word of God. So we, you would be welcome here. Hope you have a great week. Uh, hope to see you soon. Take care.